From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Ten years ago, on March 13th, 2013, Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio was elected Pope. I remember those first moments vividly. We found out he was from Argentina, the first Pope from the Global South. Then we heard his name would be Francis I, or maybe just Francis, and which Francis was he naming himself for? When we saw him step to the window above St. Peter's Square, he was looking fairly calm, but maybe also a bit overwhelmed. And then he asked the pilgrims thronging below to pray for him before he offered his first papal blessing. He seemed humble and warm. And then there were other stories of his humility. He checked himself out of the hotel he'd been staying in himself. He celebrated his first Holy Thursday Mass, washing the feet of inmates at a prison. I could sit here and reminisce all day, because it's been quite a decade for the church and for the world, which of course is a huge understatement. Anyway, I wanted to take a moment on the podcast to reflect on the first 10 years of Francis's papacy. What have the major themes been? How has the church changed or maybe not changed? Where might we be headed? And my guest today, is perhaps the most qualified person to talk about these questions in the English-speaking world. Austin Ivory is a journalist, an author, and a commentator who has written two books about Pope Francis, The Great Reformer and Wounded Shepherd. He also collaborated with the Pope himself on a book called Let Us Dream, which charts a path forward from the COVID pandemic. I loved firing questions at Austin and hearing his characteristically sharp insight on everything Pope Francis. Few people on the planet have such a strong understanding of the Holy Father's heart and mind as Austin does. And so it was a real joy to mark the 10th anniversary of Francis's unbelievable pontificate with Austin. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Austin Ivory, welcome back to AMDG. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk. How are you? Good to be back with you, Mike. I'm fine. Thank you. Great. Uh, so I was excited to invite you on because we're coming up now on the 10th anniversary of the papacy of Pope Francis. And I started thinking, who could I ask on to the show to talk about that? And I feel like you have a unique vision, a connection with the heart of Francis and kind of what his, his top priorities and his way, his, his, yeah, really his heart. I feel like you're just so connected and, and get him in a way that I think is, is really great. So I always love reading your stuff about him. Uh, and so I wanted to take this time to take this stock at this 10 year time to kind of go over any of these major themes as we look back and then maybe also look ahead to see uh, where might uh, we be going. And so I thought we maybe could take turns and I'll just start with you. Is a way of into Pope Francis as easy as any other just to kind of maybe collect some of these, uh, the gifts and joys and surprises over mm. the past 10 years. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll let you kind of pick mm. one. What, when you think about that, like what, what is something that has either surprised you, has uh, fills you with joy, something is different that he has done than others? So yeah, whatever you want to start with, I'll let you go with that. Gosh, Mike, I mean, the, I could, you know, there's a whole list of things, isn't there? And and one of the things about this pontificate is that it has always been to, to coin what is now almost a cliche, a papacy of surprises. Um, and I think that's part of the joy and, and the energy uh, that we've had over the last 10 years is that this is a, a, a pontificate that one really does feel has been led 
in so many ways by the spirit. It's been open to the spirit and open to the people and the peripheries, uh, which I think has just made it a, a much more dynamic uh, and open place. The pontificate, I mean, I mean, the church, I hope in general has also, we can get into this, but how, to what extent has the wider church been transformed by the pontificate remains an open question, but I think there's no question that there has been a new wind blowing these last 10 years. I was I was actually looking back on the biography I wrote called The Great Reformer, which came out in 2014. And um, there was a sort of line in there about, about and I, it's slightly overwritten, I, I cringe a bit, but it was about how these journalists in Rome at the time, in March 2013, you know, they had arrived, particularly the sort of more secular journalists who had arrived, and they, they arrived shaking their heads over all these stories of Vatican corruption and, you know, all, all, all the stuff going on, the scandals and so on. And they were really amazed by the election of Francis. You could see that they were amazed by just those first few days of the pontificate, this sort of fresh wind. That was the analogy I used. It was like a boat that had run ashore now, kind of up on the waves again. And I don't think to say that is in any way to, to reject what came before, because, I mean, every new pope brings, there's a kairos of, of new possibility with every new pope. I think with Francis, what, what we've had is... The, the arrival of many things simultaneously, we've had the arrival of an extraordinary leader, you know, who really understands governance, uh, who has a profound discernment about the signs of the times of the church. We've also had the arrival of the Latin American church at the centre of the universal church, which I think has been a sort of a surprise and a shock for many people. And then I think we've had this, um, we've had this, uh, this extraordinary openness. And I, that's, that's, if you ask me, what's the big shift over the last 10 years i would say is this there's this just openness transparency closeness you know and this of course has been a big part of what francis has sought to bring about in the church is a, 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 as it were we feel much closer now i think to what we might have felt at the time of christ or in the early church you know that same um and yeah that same kind of energy and, and, and new possibilities so 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 i think the pope has performed the closeness and the mercy of God in a way that I think people have really felt, and that has given the pontificate its special character. I, there's so many of these these words you've just even used now that you could be these headlines in a bulleted list if you're going to make. What are some of these key themes that we've seen? If you're going to do some like a, a literary style analysis of this this ten year story, what are those themes we're seeing over and over? And I think like one for me is that comes up. You talked about peripheries, the sense of going to the peripheries. This pope from the peripheries. And then the way, even from the very beginning, those first days, I still remember that, that first Holy Thursday when he went to wash the feet of, of inmates and how surprising that felt. Or his first visit going to Lampedusa, and there's great stories about him kind of arranging for that to be his, his first visit where migrants have been arriving, you know, from from North Africa. And so I think and then in his writings and so many times, um, culture of encounter going to those the peripheries. How do you like, un, for him, what what makes that? Why is that such an, an essential kind of theme for kind of yeah. understanding him? So I, I, the peripheries uh, are an important place for Francis, as of course, they were for Jesus, because they are the place of new possibility. So, um, I mean, I think I, I can put this theologically. Francis is very influenced by Yves Congar's book uh, on reform of the church in, in 1950. And, you know, Congar's idea, looking back over the 
the history of the church is that is that the, the, the center when the center opens to the periphery dynamic things happen you know so there's this uh, and then the other thing Francis has often said is that from the periphery you see the world as it is you see the world much more clearly than from the bubble of the center uh, so I think there's been a very conscious and deliberate strategy the last 10 years to open the center understood here as the universal church and Rome and the papacy to the periphery being of course the place of uh, of, of existential, you know, suffering and need and pain, but also the geographical periphery, which is why he has focused so much in his pontificate, in his travels, on uh, the peripheral nations. I mean, if you're asked, you know, what's been his you know, strategy of his apostolic voyages? Obviously, there have been some exceptions to this for special events like World Youth Day or whatever. But generally, when given the choice, he's gone to small marginal nations. He's picked cardinals. Uh, a large number of cardinals from peripheral places within the church, in other words, places with, without many uh, uh, Catholics. And of course, he's had a prophetic constant attention to the interstices or the borderlands of our nation states where migrants languish in refugee camps. And he famously went to Lesbos and, of course, came back with you know, Muslim refugees. Uh, and so, and from there, from the periphery, so he's done two things. He's gone to the periphery to call attention to the periphery because that's the place of pain and suffering where the spirit is speaking to us. He's also gone to the periphery in order to invite us to look at the world from there. You know, I mean, I, I remember the homily he gave in Ciudad Juarez, you know, El Paso in, 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 um, it was February 18, wasn't it? And and it, he basically has this whole kind of indictment. You know, what have we become? <laughs> Looking at what is happened, what happens to the refugees who die in the desert or who drown in the Mediterranean or who languish in these refugee camps? You know, and he says he said in Malta, you know, we talk about the Holocaust and these great tragedies of the 20th century and slavery. Well, this is happening right now here. You know, so I, I think he he's and he did that very from the very beginning in Lampedusa. You know, what have we become? Um, so I think the periphery has been a, a, a great and important place from which to preach and teach in this pontificate. Hmm. So you mentioned your, your book, which uh, The Great Reformer, which you wrote in 2014. So pretty early on now, nine years ago. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you went back to do a, a, revi a new edition this year um, and write, wrote a new introduction or, or preface, uh, what what things have have changed or things have you seen developed if you were to revisit that now and think oh I, this actually has kind of played out in kind of similar style uh, or direction or again what 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 has been new in those times that might have surprised you yeah i mean we writers tend to try and avoid going back too far with our books because it's usually wince inducing and there are things about the great reform which do which are slightly wince inducing for me and i think um i think back then i was some people would say nothing's changed, but I was really in awe of Francis. You know, I hadn't met him, by the way, before I wrote the biography. I didn't meet him. I didn't sit down with him, in fact, till June 2018, while I was writing Winded Shepherd. Um, so that was the first time, really, we had had a proper sit-down face-to-face. Um, so when I wrote Great Reformer, I'd had no contact with him. I'd obviously spoken to a very large number of people who had worked with him. And... Um, uh, and I was in awe of him, and I suppose I, I was—I I bought into a little bit of this kind of the heroic myth, you know, of the of the the providential leader who appears at, at the right time, and uh, you know, the, the the myth of the heroic leader. And I I confess to that in my second book, Wounded Shepherd, which begins in fact with an with the encounter with Francis, where Francis is kind of saying to me, "I think you're too kind to me," and. You know, you've got to realise when I came here, I just had a suitcase and I was planning to go back to Buenos Aires. I didn't come with some great, you know, in other words, don't don't overdo the whole 
you know, he didn't say that directly, but that's, of course, what I, what I took from it. And, of course, by then I had understood that the way, he, the way he, he governs is actually very different. Of course, he's a man, a leader of very, very impressive you know, capacities in all sorts of respects. But actually, the real power of his governance lies in the way he facilitates processes uh, which allow uh, the spirit to open new horizons. So it's much more like, and I said this in Winded Shepherd, it's much more like a spiritual director leading somebody on a, on a kind of Ignatian retreat. In this case, he's leading the whole of humanity on that retreat, inviting them to open to the grace of conversion. So it's more in response to what the spirit is already doing. So I think that's, if I go back to, to a great reformer, I would that would be my critique. But actually, if I do go back to it, and I have done, obviously, occasionally, I think it stood up pretty well. I think, you know, I think there was a vision there. And I think as time has gone on, the, the, the profundity of the discernment behind the reform has become more and more clear over time. And I think now with Synodite, so I, let me just sort of make this a bit more concrete. Back in, so we, often we tell the story of the pontificate, don't we, starting with the famous speech he gives to the cardinals on the 7th of March, in which he talks about Christ being kept in the sacristy. You know, we've got Christ tied up in the sacristy and we don't let him out. It was all about how evangelization is the fruit of the Spirit leading the church out to the peripheries. And that's when the church is in consolation, is joyful. And he contrasted that with the des church in desolation, which lives from its own light, closed off to grace. And he uses the analogy of the paralyzed woman in the Gospel of Luke. Well, what a lot of people don't know is that he had a very similar image and diagnosis in the conference, in the general conference of the Latin American bishops in May 2007 at Aparecida, when he gives this homily, which has the very similar effect to the one, to the speech in 2013, in that it left people kind of, wow, this is, this man is anointed. And he said there, but he had a great phrase there, he was talking about using the same image, the church bent over, like the, the woman, paralyzed woman in Luke, and then the people of God somewhere off over there. <laughs> it was almost like, he was saying, you know, all this stuff about secularization and the great lament that people have left the church. No, no, the church has left the people. You know, the church has withdrawn from the people. It has become sclerotic. It has become inward looking. It has become defensive. I mean, he didn't say all this, but, you know, if you, if you actually look at the diagnosis, it is the church that is moralistic, clericalist, authoritarian, and that doesn't evangelize. It's very good at sort of telling people what to think and we've got the truth and here it is but it doesn't actually evangelize it doesn't perform the mercy of god it doesn't do what jesus did which is to bring healing and life to the world and thereby allow people to know god so you see right at the heart of the of, of that speech to the cardinals and and the address in Paracida, a deep diagnosis a deep discernment about what had gone wrong why the church had become why it was difficult for the church to evangelize the contemporary modernity not because contemporary modernity uh, made it impossible to be christian although it does present lots of obstacles but because the church had failed to discern what the spirit was asking of the church in this new context so you can see the whole pontificate as an attempt to allow the church to hear that new thing that the Spirit is doing in the church that allows it to evangelize. He keeps coming back to this, Mike, constantly, particularly when he's with the Jesuits. You know, I want an evangelizing church. The church needs to be an evangelizing church. You know, so it's all been about what has stopped the church evangelizing and what enables it. And now we see with the Synod on Synodality, he's making these two key connections, rooting the church in the Spirit, but also in the people. 
because it is in the people of God, in listening, in the people of God listening to each other to find out what the Spirit has said to the people, that we discover where the Spirit is leading the church. So, I, you know, the synod on synodality, now I, I, I look at the synod on synodality, and we can talk more about it because I've been very involved in it, but I go back to that homily in a parasita where he has this beautiful image of people, pastors, all praying, or sorry, all listening to each other and listening to the Spirit at the same time, and the people of God on this journey together, opening up to the Spirit. And you can see that this is really, the synod on synodality is a sort of, that if you like, the mature expression of this discernment in this latter phase of the pontificate of that original diagnosis. Yeah, certainly like uh, incarnating that that vision. And I think like in a way that's it's so moving because like you could, he has written about this. He could write an apostolic exhortation, the joy of the gospel, writes beautifully, can send that out to everyone. And people read it. And who, who knows what type of change happened? I'm not, I'm sure, sure, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure they understood it. When Evangelii Gaudium came out, I'm not sure. I think people were baffled by it. Sh- sure. Um, we could talk about that too. There's some, some great things in there. But there's just different ways. And I think of like, even at, you know, we were trying to think about as a leader, how do we affect change in our community? And we could put on big splashy events or, or write things or like highly produced TV sh- like programs. You know, even for me thinking, working for the Jesuits, how do we promote the Jesuit mission? And there are a lot of ways to do that versus a process that engages people. And I think and gets and gets their input, brings them together in this structure of the synod. And I think that's where I think real change can happen as long as then leaders are ready to respond to that change. But so I do want to ask you, since you have been involved, how, well, what has surprised you about your involvement mm. in the synod? Um, and how has it, as you've described, kind of enfleshed this this vision that has been animating all of the papacy, it feels like leading to this mm. uh, to this moment? Yeah, well, I think I think you can see the the sort of 2013 to 2019 as the Pope reforming the synod and teaching the bishops what synodality is and allowing them to experience it. And I think this is really important. So the synods on the family, and then and then we had the uh, synod on young people 2018, and then Amazonia 2019. And between each of these synods, you can see him teaching the things that he says but also the reforms that he makes he's working this thing out this instrument and then you know 2020 21 then comes this this new thing which is really putting flesh on what he says in 2018 in in the document of episcopalis communio when he says that the synod must become ever more an instrument for listening to the spirit in the people must pick so we begin not just with a consultation of the people but actually the people themselves assembling you know to hear what the spirit has to say to them so all this is about the the census fidelium the instinct of faith of ordinary people now you know you and i kind of grown up with this you know good vatican II theology census fidelium you're asking me about what i've learned or my experience of this is that i've really come to understand in this process being involved first of all in the england and wales process and being part of the team that uh, read that document and then it, m- more importantly in Frascati with the uh, with a, a, a team of 26 people drawn from across the world and it was our job to draw up the what's called the document for the continental stage which is a synthesis of the 116 bishops conferences syntheses okay so uh, in all of this I was completely kind of fascinated by well h- how do you do how does this thing work how does this how do you take all this material and hear what the Spirit is saying. And what is this thing called the census fidelium, you know? And 
I've really learned it. I, I've, I've just learned that it's true. It's real. Um, and I've, I guess I've come to understand this is how the church really grows. This is, this is the instrument that Christ left the church. You know, when he said, I'm going off now, but I'm leaving you with my spirit. And my spirit will lead you into the whole truth. And so, of course, chapter 15, Acts of the Apostles, you know, first crises, the disciples haven't got a clue what to do, or rather they do, but they all disagree violently. And so they turn in humility uh, to the spirit. And they do this by a deep listening to each other, including the least among them. And then it becomes clear. And I, I really felt, it really felt to me sitting in Frascati, being part of this process, that I was, you know, back there in the <laughs> in the room in Jerusalem, you know, um, because you do begin to see, okay, this is, this is the voice here. You know, it's humble, it's hopeful. It, there's a, there's a sort of, it can be very critical. The people can be uh, quite rightly critical of what is wrong, but it's, it's not done in a sort of, you know, the church should do this, or if the church doesn't do this, then we're, you know, it's, it's, it's that voice which says the church surely is called to this. You know, I feel that this is what the church has been called to, that, you know, this is what Jesus does. Why can't the church be more like this? It's very beautiful. And it's coming from very ordinary people. And you learn to hear, you learn to detect and to understand that voice. And you also begin to realize when it's been snuffed out, <laughs> you know, either by, you know, anxious bishops or a lay establishment or whatever, who just... Uh, or even a theological sort of establishment wanting to put commentary on all of this. No, no, no. You know, the spirit actually does speak through the ordinary people. So this is something that Francis has said, Bergoglio said so often, has written about. But until I did this, I really don't think I understood it fully. And I, I, I'm very grateful that I now do see that. And when you do experience it, you think, yeah, this is how the church should be. This is, this is, this is right. This is natural, you know. That's this is risky, right? This is risky for a pope to do to open yourself up in this way and to invite that in. I know, like pastors at local levels, and you heard stories of people sometimes afraid to ask people because what you might hear, or you'll get those kind of grenades of think people like lobbing in, you know, criticisms. But again, haven't really seen that at least on a, a wide scale. But for me, like, it reflects the courage I've seen of Francis. This kind of lack of defensiveness, the sense that he has this pearl of great price, this faith that he wants to share and sharing it's not going, it's, it can't be destroyed by sharing it. Like you don't have to protect it and keep it locked away. Like, you know, Gollum's precious. You could share it with others and it's okay to, to talk to people about who might disagree or you might disagree with you. And so that to me reflects like this kind of great humility and pastoral courage even uh, from him that uh, is refreshing. Uh, I agree. And also a familiarity with the people of God. You know, here, here you, you see a pastor who's spent a lot of time with the, you know, ordinary faithful people and who understands that the faith is not the, is not the preserve of the clergy. And, and that's why this, you know, one of the great distinctions that uh, he makes back in the, um, back in his 2015 speech on synodality, the Iglesia descends, the Ecclesia descends, that the teaching church and the listening church can't be, you know, simply divided that the, you know, we have the hierarchy in the clergy who teach and then the, the people of God who listen and learn. Uh, uh, it's just not like that. It's much, it's, it's the whole people of God together. The spirit has been poured out on all the baptized. Uh, now, of course, the hierarchy has a particular task and a particular, I would say, authority and an obligation. And, you know, one of the things I spend a lot of time explaining, particularly to my 
Anglican or former Anglican, you know, uh, people are here in England and Wales is that this is not a parliamentary system like they have in the Episcopal Church, Church of England, or indeed in many Protestant churches where things literally are decided by votes and by debates. No, in in the Catholic synodality, votes happen, but the votes are indicative, they're not determinative. And ultimately, you need a discerner in chief, who is the bishop, if it's a diocesan synod or at a universal level, ultimately, it's the Bishop of Rome. And their job is to listen deeply and carefully to everything that's been said and happened, and to say, okay, here, we think the spirit is present. Uh, and here it isn't. And Francis famously did that, of course, in the synod on Amazonia, and, um, you know, which, which disappointed many people when he didn't uh, implement, you know, the ordination of married men, because in fact, through the synod, he he had discerned all sorts of other things. So that's the way our system works. And I think it's quite important that it works that way, because it's all about transcending differences. It's about opening new horizons, which allow, which is what creates the unity. See, in other models, parliamentary models, you might get a big dispute like we have in all of our churches at the moment, for example, over LGBT blessing, say, or ordination of women or one of those hot button issues. Um, and what happens in the in the Anglican church is that both sides fight it out and then it's resolved by a vote. The one part, one side is victorious, the other side, of course, feels angry and beleaguered and, and, and the division is never healed, whereas synodality is all about healing. So I think, I think Francis has been, is... Um, brilliant, I think, at teaching us this alchemy, if you like, of synodality, where the fruit is a reconciled diversity, which is not a sort of passive, tolerant, let's all just live with each other, Um, but nor is it a a sort of struggle, power struggle to see who wins, but something different that is of the spirit that allows something new to be born of fruitful, uh, holding things in fruitful tension. Uh, and that's where th- th- there's a real genius at the heart of his understanding of synodality, which I think is a great gift to the church at this time, not least because, as the synod itself has shown, we are deeply divided as a church, as a society, as a culture. And unless we can you know, open ourselves to this action of the spirit, we're, we're, we're frankly condemned both in the church and in the world to a future of fratricidal violence. You know, uh, this, is, this, is, this is an existentially crucial matter. Uh, uh, and that's why I think synodality will be one of the most crucial legacies of this pontificate. I think the way you're talking about that, too, dovetails quite nicely with Francis's emphasis on mercy, you know, jubilee of mercy, the sense of the healing that's needed or the early days of the pandemic, that very powerful you know, prayer service uh, in front of St. Peter's Basilica, uh, that kind of healing those those wounds and kind of mercy scene is that way. What, can you talk a little bit about that, that theme of mercy or yeah. healing and, and other ways you've seen that uh, kind of lived out? Yeah, and of course, a key theme from very right from the start of the pontificate when he, I think his first Angelus, he was quoting Cardinal Casper's book, you know, The Name of God is Mercy. And that, um, I mean, he, he, he has always said and insisted that the truth of God is God's mercy and that we, that, that's who God is. God's identity card, as he as he put it in twenty sixteen, um, and that therefore there is no opposition between truth and mercy, as we so often, in our very human way, you know, we we think, oh, well, you know, too much mercy dilutes truth, you know, or too much truth drives out mercy. No, uh, the, the the truth is a person <laughs> who changes your horizon. To use Benedict's uh, great phrase. 
and uh, and therefore to know God is to know God's mercy. To experience God is to experience God's mercy, and this is crucial because evangelization in this discernment of uh, Francis's, which I was talking about earlier. Um, we don't come nowadays to faith in globalized modernity through through the trans the old transmission belts of law, culture, institutions, family. Of course, that they're still important, but they're increasingly less important as these things become detached and fragmented, and that increasingly, therefore, the faith is transmitted through the direct experience of the encounter with Christ, which is always an encounter of mercy. You cannot encounter Christ without encountering mercy. And that's why it's so crucial for the church to present this face of mercy, not as some sort of marketing strategy, but I would put it differently. I'd say what's absolutely vital for the church's evangelizing credibility is to offer the experience of mercy, the experience of the encounter with Christ as mercy, because without it, nothing else happens. In other words, people might be converted um, by the truth of the church's doctrine, but only if they have first had that experience with mercy. Otherwise, it will seem abstract, cold formulations, which make very little sense and increasingly less sense, actually, in our society, without that initial, what Francis calls the primary encounter, what they called in, 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 in the Paris, the El Encuentro Fundante, the founding encounter, because from that encounter flows everything else. This is why Evangelii Gaudium, there's this kind of urgency in it where he's where he's saying look this is this is you know this has to happen if this doesn't have the very future of the church the very future of humanity depends on this um it's because of that discernment that he 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 first has has in a parasita so he has himself of course sought to embody and perform that mercy in everything he does and, and some of the most memorable moments of the pontificate to go back to your first question have been have they not you know, where 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 the Pope has actually performed this. Now, you know, there are so many, but I mean, the famous kissing of the man covered in sores in St. Peter's Square, the bending down to kiss the feet of the South Sudanese politicians in uh, 2019, the, um, uh, the, 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 the the flying back with refugees from, from Lesbos, when he cries in front of the Rohingya refugees in Dakar and he says the name of God is is, is Rohingya, you know, I mean, these these things are spontaneous. They come from him naturally. You know, they're not gestures in the way we often use the word gesture. They they flow from his deep rootedness in 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 Christ, in the experience of Christ. You know that he's had every day. So that, and to me, the truth of what he says about this about mercy to me is, is quite clear from my own conversations with people who have had nothing to do with the church, nothing to do with Christianity, who, when they know that I write about Francis and so on, often will say to me, oh, I was so moved by that. And they, what they say, they, sometimes it's what he said, but more often it's one of those gestures, has deeply touched them and deeply moved them. Why? Because, of course, they recognise subconsciously that is Christ, that is Jesus Christ. And I think that's that's so key to the transformation of the last 10 years is this this that, that he's managed to show christ to the world through these gestures uh in, in a way that we all need to learn from frankly sure and i think 
like me on the internet talking to people, there, it's always that sometimes that temptation to go to those hot buttons first, right? And or for people who are on the edges, like those big questions about uh, like those controversial issues. And I think again, like, and he'll talk about them when he's asked about them, certainly, but a reframing in that first we have the, we show the relationship, we have that encounter, we accompany, we show, talk, we reflect mercy, we live that mercy and that welcome, we enlarge the tent. And then when there's that relationship, when, then you can get into some of those exactly thorny right. things once you have that relationship. But exactly it's right. that, for me, a correct ordering yes. as opposed to starting with those, let's go right to the hot button things. And, 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 and he would say the same. And I, I've been on my own journey, Mike, because I, you know before Francis, I, I was very involved in sort of Catholic apologetics. I, I created something called Catholic Voices, and we were you know we had a bit of a role in the bit, bit visit of Benedict XVI to the UK in 2010 and I wrote a book called How to Defend the Faith Without Raising Your Voice which is in a way showing that the church's stance on these ethical hot button issues it, you know is reasonable and where it's coming from and I you know and I, I, I'm not ashamed of doing any of that but I think what Francis what I what came to me in that work was the most important thing was to establish the connection early on with the with the person that we're addressing whether that person is in front of us or whether you know as in your case you're speaking to you know, thousands of listeners who you can't see, that the, the, the connection that needs to be established early on is this connection of love, of respect, of acceptance, of hospitality, if you like. Um, and then that's what makes, you know, dialogue possible. So off, what I was kind of arguing for in that project in Catholic Voices, Francis gets elected and just performs it. He just does it, you know, in a way that, that, that I suddenly realised, well, gosh, you know, this project now isn't needed. <laughs> the Pope is doing this, and we just we just have to learn from him. Absolutely right. So I think a lot of your Jesuit formation has come through in this conversation. Talking about Francis uh, as a spiritual director of the of a retreat based in the exercises or in his discernment. And I will say the synod process, especially, which we participated in as a, an office of kind of Jesuit governance, it, I think it does reflect the best of Jesuit tradition in which we do, I think we sit and we do communal discernment around things and gather up that information. We try to, again, have those spiritual conversations that live space for, for everyone, uh, try to kind of root uh, all we do in the exercise. And so uh, for yourself, again, as a fellow at Jesuit uh, Campion Hall at, at Oxford, um, how has Francis led as a Jesuit? Where do you see Jesuit fingerprints and the Ignatian tradition on on the way he has uh, proceeded uh, as pontiff? So just in case there's any confusion from that description of me that you've just given, I'm not, I'm not a Jesuit. I'm a, I'm a lay person who I was briefly in the uh, Jesuit novitiate many years ago, so I did the spiritual exercises then, and I guess I, I'm I would consider myself an Ignatian layman now, and I you know kind of do the eight days each each, each year, and I have a spiritual direction. So, um, but actually the the sort of my Ignatian soul has been rekindled by Francis. I mean I think he's reconnected me to um, to Jesuit spirituality in in a way that. Um, Perhaps I didn't have back then, you know. So he's led me to a deep understanding, I think, of uh, because he 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 really does live and breathe uh, Ignatian spirituality. I mean, it's just his his way of being and his way of thinking. Now he transcends the Jesuits as well. I think it's worth saying, you know, that he he his way of thinking is also sui generis in so many ways. Uh, but discernment's absolutely the heart of it. I mean, just to give you one example, and this is what something that I suppose again I've just learned from him. Um, 
I, you know, I sometimes joke because people give me a hard time for sometimes being a being an apologist for France. You know that I'm sort of not critical, I'm not objective, and I I, I actually agree with that. I'm not. I'm I'm a disciple, you know, and a follower. I've I've learned. He's my you know he's been a great teacher. Um, I hope I'm not. Uh, that doesn't mean I forego any you know critical faculty because of course he can make mistakes and like anybody else. Um, but one thing I've I've learned from him that he's taught me is really the basis of the book we did together in 2020 called Let Us Dream, uh, which is about the uh, his discernment of the future of humanity in the context of the pandemic. You know, so it's putting flesh. We talked about it. We did a whole podcast on it, didn't we? But uh, that book is based around the the, the, the three things of see, judge, act, or, or as he would put it, contemplate, discern, act. And the reason that we constructed that way is that by the time we came to do that book, I had come to understand so much about the way he operates, which is starting from the assumption, which is the assumption of faith, we are never left alone in a crisis, that God always accompanies us, and that the Spirit has already acted in the place of our pain and our crisis to show us the way forward. So we begin by seeing the what's happened to us, where what, what has become of us, who we are. We, be, we begin by looking, and we go above all to the peripheries and the places of pain, because from there we can see clearly what we have done, what has happened to our world. We begin by looking, and then we move into discernment, which is to say, where is the spirit acting in this situation? And he quotes the poet Holdelin, where the danger is, there grows the saving power. So right there in the crisis, we have the exit and we have the way out. We have the grace of conversion, and it always involves a conversion. And then thirdly, we consider then the lines of action and the concrete steps that flow from that discernment. Now, having understood that this is kind of the way he operates, you know, and, 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 and it starts right there in the exercises, doesn't it, with the incarnation meditation where God looks down on the earth and responds to the crisis, let's call it a crisis, that's happening on earth, not with a lecture or a book or a, or a podcast, dare I say, but with, a, with the incarnation. And, and that this is, this is always, therefore, the invitation, you know, wh- wh- where, is, where is God being born in this new situation? I think having understood that, I, I, I've sort of now begun to see that really the whole pontificate has been based on that. You know, he starts with the crisis in the church, you know, the crisis of authority, the, cri- the abuse crisis, or the crisis of the church no longer being able to evangelize contemporary modernity. And, and he uses this process uh, to show us the way forward. He's done the same with the ecological crisis, with the, with, with the climate change. He's done the same with uh, the migration crisis. He this is where he starts from. This is how he he works, and I think that's that, that's at the heart of his his pontificate is this Jesuit or Ignatian way of proceeding. Hmm. I, so you mentioned working with him uh, on on a book, and again, I've had conversations with him and uh, exchanged letters. And I am just maybe as we begin to wrap up here, are there things that you've learned from that interaction with him you described one about the what you see the way he proceeds uh, uh in his discernment uh, are there other things about him we might not see if we're just kind of encountering him uh uh on tv or, or the internet like, what, what about him um have you experienced from your kind of uh, unique uh look uh, or experience uh, in relationship with him well i don't think from the from the times i've i've sat down with him and indeed my correspondence with him um I'm not sure that I've seen something. I don't think there's a hidden Francis, you know. In other words, mm. there's so much of Francis on YouTube where he's in often quite intimate encounters with people and the way he speaks and so on. 
is very much him. I suppose um, when we're together, he he <laughs> he likes to throw in words from a Buenos Aires slang called lunfardo because we always speak in obviously in Spanish and because my Spanish is from Buenos Aires, I think he's rather chuffed with this idea of this Englishman who speaks <laughs> with a Buenos Aires accent. And because I'd once seen him, he has a lunfardo dictionary on his on his shelf, and I pointed that out. Anyway. He likes to throw in these words, and, that, and, and um, which I suppose he wouldn't normally do with people. Um, and I suppose also that you know he 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 sometimes um, will mention people or writers who have been very significant to him. I mean, he's astonishingly well read. Uh, mm. it, it is amazing how bre- how broad his his formation, his cultural formation is. And he sometimes throws in these names, you know, kind of assuming I would know them, which often I don't. But, you know, when he talks about Miguel Angel Fiorito, for example, who was a great guru uh, of the Argentine Jesuit province, a great philosopher, you know, he knows that I know these people. So in other words, you know, we have that kind of, I suppose there's there's a familiarity in that conversation because he knows I know about this past, you know. Um, But look, on a sort of personal level... um, I always get very stressed when I'm going to see him. I don't know. I mean, see, the thing is, he's the Pope, you know, and however, whatever he's like, he's the Pope. And he, there's a part of me, and I think this is true of everybody who meets him, you know, you are awestruck by the office. You know, it is a formidable office. Um, and yet when I'm with him, I'm completely at ease. He puts you at ease. He's just got this graciousness and he's very, very funny, as we know. He's got this wonderful sense of humor and humility. Um, but he's very much a man of authority. You know, I, 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 you sense his authority in his presence, but it's not an intimidating authority. It's a liberating authority because it's an authority that, that is, is, in the, is in everybody's service, you know. So the whole, his whole attitude is, you know, how can I help? You know, how can I, how can I make things better? You know, what's needed here? And that incredible um, disposition, disponibility, I suppose the Jesuits would say, disponibilidad in Spanish, you know, the to, to readiness to serve um, is remarkable in him. And I always leave his company feeling loved and free. And I've always felt that those would be the two things that if I met Jesus, I would feel. Mm. So, um, uh, and um, and then I'm always amazed at the other thing, and I'm not the only one amazed at this, is the, his, the generosity or the way he uses time he always has time. Yeah, of course, he's sometimes short of time. and he, But when he's with you, he just gives you that time, you know. And um, uh, uh, and that generosity is, is amazing, given his 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 life. Uh, and the only other thing I would say is working with him, I may have said this on the podcast we did on Let Us Dream, uh, I was just astonished at his work, his capacity for work. And it's something that people who have worked with him in Buenos Aires always told me when I was doing the biography. But until I'd actually experienced it close hand, I realised he just has this extraordinary energy. He's, he's, the, he's the quickest, fastest thing in Rome. You know, he just turns things around with astonishing speed. Um, and he, he just drives things forward. It's quite amazing to be close to that kind of energy. On the other hand, when something is not clear to him, he will be very patient. He will wait. He will make sure he gets as much information as he can from as many different people as he can. He's incredibly well informed. And then, of course, he'll do that discernment. And then when he sees where the spirit is leading, he goes for it. And then he moves like a 
bulldozer <laughs> and taking everybody by surprise. So, I, but I don't think I'm saying here anything that anybody doesn't know. But it, it just those, sure. are, those are the things that have struck me being being. So then, there. responding to your editing or editorial recommendations, uh, was he a, a good writing partner in that way? No, magnificent. I mean, the, the, the wonderful thing about working with him on the book was that, you know, I would. He, he, so I would send him questions. He would he would answer. I would work up a narrative in Spanish and, and in English. We were working with both, and he would then work on that narrative. And sometimes he would be completely, ha- you know, that's fine. That's exactly what you know. And then other times he would really get to work on it, you know. And then a few days later, I'd get it just completely rewritten and beautiful new things added. So um, he he was a he it was a genuine collaboration, uh, and he worked mm. incredibly hard on it. And uh, uh, that book, by the way. Um, which was the first book ever of its kind, um, in the sense that it was a book by Pope Francis, but done in collaboration with me. Um, I think it was only possible because of lockdown. I think he had that little bit of extra space. I think nowadays, you know, it would be pretty much impossible. Um, so I'm, I'll always be grateful for that, for that, um, that Kairos, that moment, you know, that opened. Sure. Um, and, and, you know, when I wrote him in a mad moment of, I think they call it parisia, don't they? Parisia, you know, apostolic courage, you know. Um, it, that w- I think definitely that was of the spirit. In fact, when I look back, mm. I think when I went to Buenos Aires to write the biography, you know, that was, I felt very much uh, pulled by the spirit then. Um, and then when I wrote to him, I think I remember feeling very much, yes, this is, this is the right thing, you know, this is of God. And here we have a Pope who I think, realizes when something is of the spirit and will respond very immediately and very directly and that's why to go back to perhaps the very first thing we said in this conversation that's why this pontificate has been so dynamic Just one last question before I let you go, which is now at the beginning of a second decade, and, and who knows, again, where we'll be. And we don't want you necessarily to predict the future. But I would ask, are there things you're looking for, you'll be paying close attention to kind of now as the second decade begins in, in the, the weeks and months and hopefully years ahead? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the pontificate will be divided by decades. You know, I don't think we'll be talking about the first and second decade. I think we'll be talking about a pontificate which has two main phases. And I think the first phase runs up to 2019. I think the pandemic is a break. And so I think we get the pandemic, you get the synod on synodality, and you get what is now happening, which is the implementation of the curial reform, Predicati Evangelium, which came out last year. And and then, of course, this great vision of fraternity, which is very much the fruit again of, of sort of 2019, 2020. Um, so... The way I see it, and I haven't, I haven't quite formulated this, so forgive me if this doesn't quite work. But in in terms of the exercises, <laughs> this is now the fourth week, you know, mm. uh, and so I'm. There is a, a joy and a freedom in him, no question. Now he's a sort of, you know, he's a man at peace. He knows he's 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 done, he's performed the mission. You know, he is mm. befo- he is still performing the mission um, that he was given. Um, but there is this, I suppose, this opening out now. The the you know what is the fourth week about? It's it's crying with those who cry, laugh with those who laugh. You know, it's finding God in all things, um, and I think that's what's being lived out now. And I I suppose my fascination, my my curiosity is to see is to see what fruits are born of this fourth week and how how this plays out because I'm not sure that we've had a pontificate living out of the fourth week in the way that we probably are now going to see 
Mm. Well, that's a great place to to leave off. And so Austin Ivory, thank you so much again for the time and your reflection and and all your work. And uh, yeah, and uh, thank you again for I've enjoyed it very much, Mike. Thank you for asking me and thank you for this podcast, which I try and listen to regularly. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leach, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.